Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby coming to you from the Digital Shelf Institute's Cape Cod office. Rob is on from, Rob, you're in like a sweatshirt and like knit cap. What are you, where are you? Are you in the forest? (laughs) I I am in Maine on an island and it's cold up here. (laughs) You don't have heat? Well, I have my body heat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if you hear Rob shivering in his voice, you'll know why. Um, but uh, so Rob is coming to us from the wilds of Maine. And before we dig in, because we have a great topic today, a reminder that the D2C Strategy Playbook series continues. Vivian Chang, the VP of Growth of Nutrinex D2C inside of Clorox, is going to be on to talk about uh, building D2C inside of one of the most storied and certainly during COVID, one of the most important brands in the world right now. It's going to be a great conversation. September 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Annie will put the link in the show notes. So, all right, on to today's deep dive. Rob, we, um, we, you had shared with me an article from Phoebe Bain at Morning Dive, which is talking about, it led off with, has the new brand of paper towels you snagged from a barren grocery store shelf in March become a mainstay in your kitchen? You're not alone. She's talking about consumers are becoming more loyal to the small brands that they were basically forced to try back in March. Um, 39% of respondents in a, a Bizarre Voice survey said they experimented with new brands during quarantine, and 88% of those who bought a new brand said they continue to keep buying those products. How did that strike you? I mean, you sent it to me, so it sort of it hit you for a reason. What, what, what stood out to you? What stood out to me most about this is classic brand uh, market growth. And and I, let, me, let me explain what I mean by there. There is an article that is my favorite article on the subject written in the New York Times, and I want to say 2014, that said, Target knows you're pregnant before your parents do. Mm-hmm. And the Target and Kroger and others have spent a tremendous amount of effort trying to figure out through analytics when people become pregnant, because that's one of those times when your shopping habits shift when you get pregnant, when you get married, when you get divorced, there's these life events that are, are singular. And when they happen, they will cause you to go to all of a sudden you're shopping at Target all the time for everything instead of maybe you were shopping at Walmart or Stop and Shop or whatever it was before. So, so that, that those, those big step function change moments, if you can catch a consumer right in those moments and steer their direction towards you, you can get their loyalty for years up until the next major change moment. So they're extremely valuable times to be able to hit somebody. COVID is acting as a change moment for everybody. Yes. Everybody. Yeah. And I hadn't thought about it like that before. And this article really, you know, hit me in the face with, all right, well, you go to Stop and Shop and you buy bounty paper towels and you've done that for the last 10 years and you, it's on autopilot. You, You just know you're running out of paper towels. Next time you go to Stop and Shop, you're going down the aisle. You're looking at your phone. Oh, there's the same bounty ones I always buy. And you, you don't even think about it. You're not, they're paper towels. You're not interested in trying out all the other paper towels to see what you like best or whatever. You just, you know, you always buy bounty. And now 
either due to the store that you shop at being closed or it having shifted entirely, entirely to click and collect, depending on how the size of the store or the product that you're looking to buy not being in stock, but you still need paper towels anyway. There's a whole bunch of causes that might shop that might change where you shop and what you buy. And what this research is basically showing is that it wasn't just like a one time, I'm going to pick up this other brand of paper towel or I'm going to go to this other store. It's been sticky. People have picked yeah. up new habits. COVID has been going on long enough that it's, it's like getting married. It's like having a kid in, in that it changes your shopping pattern. And I mean, that is, <laughs> yeah. that is really a, a damning stat for a lot of brands that were used to these habitual purchases. I just first have to say, when you mentioned that divorce was one of those life events, I was thinking like, oh, so when you're divorced, like you can't go back to Target anymore <laughs> because that's where your ex, <laughs> you know, will be shopping. Uh, so, sorry, that just made me laugh. Um, so one of the things that stood out to me too was the shift in market share um, of smaller manufacturers uh, and larger manufacturers. Pre-pandemic 2020, smaller manufacturers saw market share jump 0.1% compared with a 0.4% decrease for larger CPGs. Since the end of April, big CPGs have seen market share slide 1.6%, while smaller businesses have enjoyed a 0.7% bump. And that made me want to figure out what's going on there, why, uh, you know, what's below those numbers. And of course, that led me to McKinsey. So I found this, this amazing Kinsey report, and I'm going to read off the five names of partners who are, worked on this because it really is a great report. Udo Kopka, Eldon Little, Jessica Moulton, Renee Schmutzler, Schmutzler, excuse me, Renee, if I got that wrong, and Patrick Simon. And essentially, it was a, a report they put out, consumer packaged goods, what got us here won't get us there, a new model for the consumer goods industry. And I want us to sort of walk through this, and I think it can apply beyond the consumer good industries because the trends that are driving this um, this shift, uh, I think, are apply across across categories in one degree or another. So keep listening, non CBGs. You'll you'll get something. I promise you. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I want to go back to the first thing you said, which yeah. is that prior to COVID, large CPGs were already losing market share, albeit at a slow rate. Mm -hmm. And COVID is, has accelerated that. Um, I mean, we've said this before on the podcast that my mental model of COVID is that it served, it has served to accelerate underlying trends. Whatever direction the trend was going, it, was, it just makes it faster. Yeah. It is interesting, though, to think through what the mechanics of that are in particular cases. So in this case, large CPGs are really, really efficient. These are well-run companies. They're, there's not a lot of fat in these organizations and in, in terms of excess manufacturing capacity. So to the extent that they can, they do just-in-time manufacturing as close to the order as possible, focused on replenishment. They've got very sophisticated demand forecasting algorithms where they, they, can, they can basically, to a very high degree of accuracy, know how many paper towels they need to manufacture next week. And they're not manufacturing more than that because you manufacture more than that, it's more than you can sell and, you know, then, you, then you're sitting on inventory that you haven't sold and can't sell and people aren't using. Yeah, and that's showing so, up. Sorry, go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I was going to say, just to complete the thought here, um, a lot of the, the smaller brands, which are growing already, so they're, they're investing ahead of where their sales are. They're investing in manufacturing capacity, ordering capacity, because they're growing, right? So, so they're, they think that next year is going to be bigger than this year. They're adding manufacturing capacity. They just have more 
like supply elasticity than the larger, more optimized brands are. And that's allowed them to respond to the empty shelves better in a lot of categories. Mm -hmm. um, and so you see, you know, CPG's hemorrhaging, I mean, over a point of market share loss is just hemorrhaging market share in this, in this period of time. And a lot of the small players being able to pick it up through, have, you know, through having the product available and through having uh, manufacturing supply chains that have a little bit more slack in the system. And what got my attention to that end in the McKinsey report was they talked about um, in terms of what's contributing to CPG players' economic profit, for the top 30 CPG companies in absolute economic profit, profit growth, margin expansion, i.e. efficiency, driving down costs, et cetera, contributed twice as much as growth to value creation. So that's, that's mind-blowing to me. And it, it doesn't seem like that's going to be sustainable business for, I mean, they'll still be around, but for the next five, 10 years, they have to figure out a way to grow, not just cut costs. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. So let me, let me tell you a little bit of an aside. So, so Target released their, uh, the first quarter earnings results at, after COVID had been live and they, they absolutely crushed it. And they not, not only crushed it from a sales perspective, e-commerce was up a couple hundred percent, which was just incredible, but overall sales were up a lot. Their margin doubled. Wow. which is just insane for a retailer, right? I mean, Target's a, Target's a well-run retailer, but to double your margin is incredible. And so, and I was wondering what was behind that. And um, through conversations with other folks, I realized that Target in this period doesn't have to pay for customer acquisition. They, they can dial back marketing substantially because people, people are going to their stores anyway. This is what, you know, you and I had that conversation back in March or April after Amazon had cut their affiliate marketing fees right at the yeah. beginning of COVID. Same sort of thing. Amazon doesn't have to pay for customer acquisition right now. And so I, I think what's happened with a lot of the CPGs with people being at home, but, you know, live sports not being around for months and months and, and whatnot. I think a lot of the big CPGs cut ad budgets and you, you see a lot of the big uh, media agencies doing layoffs in the last few months because, um, you know, the CPGs are not paying for ads the way that they have been historically. So I think, you know, honestly, a lot of the mark, a lot of the margin from, from, I haven't read the 10Ks closely enough to know if this is absolutely true, but my guess is um, if you look at the additional margin that they've driven in the last six months, a, a good percentage of it's probably just simply due to reduced advertising spend. And I mean, that's, you know, that's not the gift that's going to keep. <laughs> no, it's not. Because at some point you're going to need to get people's attention again, and they won't be so captive to the, to the channels that you want. Uh, and, and how this is showing up is that in recent years, again, according to McKinsey, the leading brands in each CPG category have generated only 25% of value growth in U.S. Nielsen covered channels. Meanwhile, small and medium-sized brands captured 45% of growth and private label products captured 30%. Yeah, I don't know what to say other than wow. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? I mean, those are stark numbers from underneath the, the headlines. And um, McKinsey did a great chart of why has the old model stopped generating growth? And they have 12 trends, you know, in a 30 minute podcast, we won't get through all of them. But I thought it was worth digging in on sort of the top ones. Yeah, uh, well, can, can I jump to number three, just yes, because I please think it's go. The, the most hilarious of them? Mm-hmm. Um, it said, um, so for, first of all, just to walk you through the chart visually, they are trying to rate the trend impact over the last 10 years of retail. So 2010 to 2020, 
and what they expect the trend impact of this to be over the next 10 years, 2020 to 10, 2030. So the number three <laughs> disruptive trend, which over the last 10 years, they rate at two out of five. And for the next 10 years, they rate at four out of five, which means that it's going to really grow in its impact on retail and manufacturing. They call it the millennial and Gen Z effect. <laughs> As I am neither, I can laugh at that and mock it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting about it is that they, um, I mean, there's a lot of things that I would have thought would have been included in that. So one of them, for example, which they call out totally separately, is conscious eating and living as the fourth most Im impactful disruptive trend, which they rate at a five over the next 10 years. I've definitely and, tried to be more uh, conscious in order to eat and live. Is, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, you know, the we've joked about this before, but the millennial, yeah. like, you know, the, the, the Gen X generation or like the opt-out generation, you know, the nihilists in a way, the millennials and the Gen Zs are like the care about everything generations. Mm -hmm. And th there is just generationally a huge trend with them and their buying patterns where they're, you, their spending is a lot more conscious, you know, whether it's low waste, whether it's um, uh, you know, pro-environmental in some way, shape or form, whether it's paleo, whether, you know, there's a lot of different Sustainability, ways yeah. Sustainability, yeah. Like there's a lot of different ways they slice product, the product worlds but they slice the product worlds on different values than price and availability, um, which, which drove a lot of the previous generation's purchasing behaviors. And so, you know, the McKinsey's basically calling out here, like these are, this is, this is going to become table stakes. If you're not playing this game, if you're not marketing specifically to the way that millennials and Gen Z's buy what their value systems are. And by the way, they spend consciously eating and living everything. You're, I mean, yeah, the combination of the, of the two, for sure. And then uh, dragging our attention up to the number one under this, this category of mass market brand building and product innovation is what they call digital ubiquity. So just data driving everything, the impact of mobile and the internet of things. And that goes from two in the last 10 years to now a five. Um, and particularly disrupted due to COVID. And so that, that's their number one. And I mean, you know, we spend our living thinking about all the, and so do brands across all categories right now, but COVID has definitely intensified. Yeah, I think the, 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 the internet of things aspect of it, my, my knee jerk is internet of things like IOT has been this buzzword for, geez, I don't know, well over a decade at this point. And it feels a little bit like blockchain, big data, internet yeah. of things, like buzzword. And I rolled my eyes. I have to admit when I saw that as McKinsey's number one, you know, it's, it's, it's only part of the whole data ubiquity, but, but as part of it. And then I realized actually in the last couple of years, there's been really amazing IOT um, rollouts, such as like the sensor nets within stores that track foot traffic via the lights that are installed, which have actually seen a lot more retail penetration over the last couple of years. And in some of the calls we've had on the DSI exec forum, people have actually mentioned this from the manufacturer side, getting data back from retailers, from, you know, the IOT sensor nets that are, that are based in the light bulbs in the retail chain and the retail sharing some of that back with the manufacturers just to track foot traffic. And like, I guess like, I, I'm just saying that for somehow it's just IOT has become a thing in retail and the data from it is really important and it's going to increasingly drive decisions.
Yeah, and, and I, I do wonder if the Internet of Things is more the the quote unquote sort of boring stuff like that rather than sort of the chip in every everyone's brain kind of Internet of Things, but but rather you know a actually adding to the data that we have to to make choices to figure out when things need to be replaced. You know, I think that's where a lot of it's going to be interesting and actually have an impact. Yeah, I think the, the big challenge on, on that number one, if we're going to stick with it, let's just reread the title again. Data ubiquity, parentheses, data, mobile, and the Internet of Things. The, the big challenge a lot of brands are going to have is, uh, you know, how do you actually use the data? How do, you, how do you store it? How do you report against it? How do you use it? There aren't systems that do this very well. Um, you know, CRM systems are not, not built for this type of stuff out of the box. We've seen people stitching together um, big data reporting systems using some of the new technology from Google and Amazon Web Services and, and just sort of hacking it out there. But there's, you know, each brand at this point is, is experimenting with how to incorporate data as part of their operations yeah. um, in a way that that's new to everybody. I mean, what do you do with foot traffic data from IoT? I mean, how do you incorporate that into your, you know, trade spend planning and all this type of stuff? I mean, this is, this is really, basically McKinsey is saying some companies are going to get good at this and it's going to give them significant competitive advantage. And other companies who, who just don't want to get good at it are just going to keep hemorrhaging market share because this stuff matters. Yeah, every, every executive that I've talked to in the D2C strategy playbook series, and most recently last Thursday, uh, Byron Kerr from uh, Serta Simmons came in through the, um, the Tufton Needle acquisition. And it's so important in D2C that you, you have to have a data science team of some kind because otherwise you're just, you're wasting your money on D2C. The important stuff that they're seeing coming back and using that as signal throughout from the product ideation process all the way through to, you know, how are we talking to our customers and what are they saying in ratings? We like all of that has to be done through a consistent approach to data and, and driving insights back out in the organization. Yeah, I wanna, I wanna just, I wanna drill into that, man, because that is so important. If you go further on in the report, there's um, a section on the new model and a chart that says getting on the right side of trends, revamping where to play and how to win. Mm -hmm. And the first thing in the chart on the new model is relevance led brand marketing, innovation and brand building. And the required capabilities in order to succeed at that are occasion and purpose led portfolio, innovation and design and data driven marketing. And, you know, it, it just, I know there's a lot of buzzwords in there, but it just gut instinct feels absolutely obvious that the future of brand building is not this one-to-many mass market. I'm going to send the same message to every single person movement. It's going to be a lot more tailored to context. And the context is a combination of individual and timing and environment and you know, what, what's surrounding the message and all this type of stuff. And there's no way to do that without, using data very effectively. You can't, you can't creative your way out of that problem. Yeah, I mean, your whole argument around sort of from masses of markets to, uh, sorry, from mass market to masses of markets where ultimately you're getting down to a market of one that you've figured out and are gonna market to, uh, that, that's where it's going. And, and McKinsey uh, underlies that here. And, and one of the things to sort of go back to, uh, to sort of the old model sort of stopped generating growth. 
the 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 biggest shift that they're seeing coming over the next 10 years is the meteoric rise of e-marketplaces. That goes from a three in the last 10 years to five. And that's cross category. I don't care who you are listening to this, like figuring out what your marketplace strategy is. If you're a distributor, like what's going on? Like, how are they competing with my business? If you're an industrial, you know, are, how are your new buyers changing the way in which they search and buy your products? So yes, it's happening in CPG, but it's also happening otherwise. And, and uh, McKinsey calls that out on to get on the right side of that trend. You need precision revenue growth management. You need to know how you're managing your e-marketplaces, building omni-channel and D2C businesses, um, digital route to market and customer contact. Again, a ton of buzzwords, but the right things, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, just on that marketplace topic specifically, I remember I went to an Amazon hackathon in Seattle in 2017, I want to say. And the, the overall topic that colored every single conversation at the hackathon, this is with all the, the digital leaders from basically um, the top 500 manufacturers in the U.S. And it's just a, just a, heck, of a heck of a hackathon. And the uh, big conversation that everybody was having is how do you go hybrid and when do you go hybrid? And what is it going to cost you to go hybrid? And how do you convince your CSO to go hybrid? And um, what, what hybrid meant there was that you need to be able to be both a first party wholesaler to Amazon and a third party seller to Amazon Marketplace. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for it, you know, controlling map, having a, having a backstop in case of, of stockouts, um, controlling, better control on branding. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of really strong reasons to do it. But the vast majority of companies we're not operating in a hybrid model at that point and couldn't see line of sight to doing it over the next year. Um, so, you know, we're in 2020 now. Still, if you look at the top 500 manufacturers, for example, in North America, uh, I haven't done a survey, but I would just based on my own personal conversations with them, I think probably less than a third can operate in a marketplace world. Most of them are still, even for um, e-commerce peer plays like Amazon, still operating in a wholesale model where they're you know selling to amazon and amazon selling to the consumer and um that's that's i don't think that's going to get you there you know yeah. everybody's going to have to be hybrid and everybody's going to need that ability to ship to consumer and sell through new digital channels or or, or you're just going to lose share yeah the uh the mckinsey sort of uh what, why have it stopped model, you know, I won't go through the rest of them, but you know, there's a steady rise of discounters, mass merchant squeeze. Um, so the final category that they talk about is mergers and acquisitions. And they sort of say jury is out on it, uh, but they definitely call that out in the new trends that you really need to sort of focus on programmatic mergers and acquisitions. And you, you still see it happening just, uh, just this past week, Edgewell acquired, um, grooming brand Cremo for $235 million, you know, sort of, oh, I see what Harry's been doing over there in Dollar Shave Club. I guess I guess I better get one um, is, is sort of how it feels, but it does feel like that's going to be part of the mix is figuring out, you know, what you're going to do with these digitally native brands. Yeah, I mean, it, man, that's a, that's a whole conversation because, I mean, as we've talked about the VC model for creating emerging brands is probably not the correct one for the vast majority of emerging brands, yeah. just because the, you know, the, the growth and the margins and the unit economics don't really support it. Um, and the VC backed emerging brands with high valuations are likely to be less of an M&A um, 
target for a lot of the, the larger manufacturers. Uh, but there are a lot of emerging brands that haven't taken VC money that are smaller, that, that have smaller growth rates, but that have, um, you know, that might be profitable or might be, you know, at least uh, operating cash flow profitable. Um, but they're smaller, right? And I think that the M&A strategy that the large folks are going to have to take over the next 10 years is going to be likely different. Like you look at a crema, you look at, um, you, I mean, Dollar Shave Club, you look at uh, and any of the big acquisitions um, over the last 10 years in manufacturing. I think the future is fewer of these, you know, multi-hundred million, billion dollar blockbuster D2C pickups and possibly a lot more 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar pickups to expand portfolio into more niche segments. That's, that's my bet on this. And do you think that there's also an element there of, of just like we see in tech sort of acquiring for skills as sometimes as much as you do, maybe even the particular products you're acquiring that, you, that people just want digital teams, performance marketing teams that they can pull into their organization? I'm more skeptical of that. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, you, we had, we had a great conversation about that where we talked about hackathons at, um, uh, I want to say Montclair was doing a great oh, yeah. digital hackathon that was company wide. And this is maybe six months ago on one of the podcast episodes. And we, we so we were talking about um, is a hackathon a way to grow talent internally? We had a conversation with Sony at Bosch about mixing the brand team into the digital team and the digital team into the brand team and moving people around in order to spread DNA internally. And I, I think I'm more bullish on companies' ability to grow these uh, skills now. There's enough people that are out there that are in these large businesses that get it, that have leadership roles, that have experience. And I don't think that Aquahire is going to play as big of a role going forward. But, um, and it's also an expensive way to get this, this type of talent that's in there. I think it's going to be far more about brand expansion and uh, uh, market segment expansion in, into places that are harder for an existing brand to reach with their existing brand portfolio. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, let, let's close out here. I think we've, we, you know, we've covered this in pretty good detail. And again, I want to reinforce and I hope, you know, the listeners who are in other markets, I think the things that we're talking about here, the digital ubiquity, um, value price sensibility, meteoric rise of e-marketplaces, you know, steady rise. I mean, the, these are happening across categories. And and so uh, the takeaways here, I think, are good. And and just closing out with kind of how McKinsey talked about the new model uh, to on where to play and how to win. You continue to leverage scale advantages in marketing spend, distribution, supply chain, and back office. But you use digital to move away from mass marketing and sales and toward targeted commercial execution. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah, I mean, you're here. <laughs> so with, with, uh, with that agreement from Rob and me, along with uh, the five folks at McKinsey, um, thanks, for, thanks for being here, Rob. This is a great convo. Appreciate it. Yeah, good to be and, here. And a reminder, and I hope you get warm at some point over the weekend. A uh, reminder to look for the next D2C session that I mentioned with Vivian Chang from Nutrinex Clorox um, Annual. As I said, we'll put that in the show notes. And please follow us on uh, the Digital Shelf Institute's LinkedIn page to stay on top of all these things. Um, and thanks, as always, for being part of our community.